Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Rob Heaton for New Books in Biblical Studies, where I focus on new and exciting scholarship in New Testament and early Christian studies. That's the orbit of my own PhD. I'm very excited today to be talking with Michael Koshinosh about his revised dissertation on Luke Acts and its author's Imitations of Roman Culture which we'll get to in a moment. But first, uh, let me introduce my guest. Michael Koshinosh earned his PhD from Claremont School of Theology in 2017 and is currently a Radboud Excellence Initiative Fellow at Radboud University in the Netherlands, specializing in the New Testament and early Christian literature. He previously has held teaching and research appointments in both the United States and China. His research interests in uh, his research interprets, that is, uh, early Christian and Jewish narratives as products of ancient Mediterranean literary production, with a special focus on their use of literary models from Jewish scriptures and classical Greek literature. He has written numerous journal articles and book chapters relating to Luke Acts and other early Christian narratives. And on top of all this, Michael is joining us today from his home, actually his office, in the Netherlands to discuss the publication of his first monograph, which is called Roman Self-Representation and the Lucan Kingdom of God. Uh, And it was published by um, uh, uh, Lexington Books, an imprint of Roman and Littlefield and Fortress Academic in a joint venture. Uh, Michael, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the New Books Network. Uh, Thanks, Rob. It's my pleasure to be here, and uh, I'm honored to have my book be the focus of this episode. Well, it's uh, it, it deserves the attention, uh, and I can say that having read it, as a matter of full disclosure, I've already reviewed Michael's book in a more critical forum for Rea Classical Reviews. Um, so he comes into this conversation uh, knowing what I think about the book because it's uh, on the record in a formal venue. Um, I'll link to my review within the New Books Network blog post uh, for anyone who's uh, listening, if you want to check that out at any point. Uh, So if you're interested to read it, but um, in these podcast episodes, we provide a more of a soft review uh, and encourage conversation with authors um, to uh, talk about uh, their research. Uh, So the questions here that I have for Michael overlap with those that are posed or um, implicit, perhaps in my review in certain ways, but they have been formulated for you, the listener, uh, the listening podcast audience in mind. So Michael, knowing all that you know, are you ready to begin? I think so. Okay, wonderful. So first of all, um, as I think you know, we have a pretty wide listener base on the New Books Network, with some having uh, expertise in biblical studies and others being largely unaware of trends within scholarship. And um, the dating and such of Luke Acts would be one of those areas that there's kind of an active scene within the last decades, but maybe not everybody is a part of it. So before we get to more advanced questions or those that you intended to tackle through your research and, and this book, Um, I wanted to begin in a pretty basic place and discuss issues like authorship, date, provenance of the Gospel of Luke, and the Acts of the Apostles. Um, These are the two books that have attracted your attention, that you focus on the most, and especially in this book, uh, all of your examples, uh, biblically uh, at least, come from from these books. Um, uh, If there's one thing that, as you know, uh, if there's one thing that biblical scholars do, it's disagree with one another, but... uh, I was wondering if you'd be willing to sketch out sort of the basic contours of recent debates on these subjects, that is authorship, date, and provenance, and for you to sort of self-locate among them, perhaps starting uh, with 
a pretty basic question, which is why is it that Luke and X are studied in tandem as if they're a unified project as you do in, in your book? Yeah, so uh, with things like authorship date and provenance, uh, we unfortunately don't have hard data within the narratives of Luke and X. The, the author doesn't identify him or herself, uh, doesn't give explicit indications of where it's written from or, or where the addressees might be located. It doesn't give any indications uh, like, say, Josephus does, where Josephus says, you know, this was written in the such and such year of such and such reign. Uh, and so... Uh, it's really tradition that has ascribed the same author to both Luke and Acts. Um, and we don't necessarily have to trust that tradition to agree that, yeah, these are probably supposed to be read together. Uh, one of the more formal elements that, that moves us in that direction is the, the prologues in both Luke and Acts that are addressed to uh, someone named Theophilus. Uh, but there's there's more to it than that. Uh, for instance, the book of Acts, at least, presents itself in a way that suggests the author wants it to be read with the Gospel of Luke. So, for instance, the way it presents uh, certain ministry, uh, ministerial actions, mi- miracles of Peter and Paul, uh, in such a way that it recalls specific episodes from the Gospel of Luke, can tell informed readers that the, the ministries of Peter and Paul are sort of natural successions of uh that of Jesus. Uh, and in that way, you can draw the conclusion that the author wants you to read this uh, as a, a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, going the other way, I think there is also reason to think that the author of the Gospel of Luke uh, had what is in the book of Acts in mind when composing the Gospel of Luke. Uh, specifically, it is the question of Gentiles. Uh, so you have in the Gospel of Luke uh, references to the inclusion of Gentiles, of non-Jews, uh, but it doesn't happen within the Gospel of Luke, as opposed to, say, in, in Matthew uh, and Mark. Uh, it's delayed until the, the Cornelius story in, in the book of Acts. So I think that in itself is, is good reason to think that the author of the Gospel of Luke was expecting to write something else. Uh, and since what we have is the book of Acts, I think there's a good reason to think that uh, there's a reasonable chance that the same person wrote both of these. And um, uh, I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you whether you agree with the Acts Seminar and Richard Perot and, and those folks about uh, dating of um, of uh, the Book of Acts, at least. But um, um, I see many people agreeing with a sort of compromised date in the 80s or 90s uh, for the composition of these two documents. And yet uh, recent scholarship has kind of pushed that date a little bit further out. Where do you stand on those uh, uh, those discussions that are going on within scholarship? Yeah, I think I think of Joseph Fitzmaier as sort of the quintessential representation of that compromise date, uh, and even he, in his commentaries, I think he explicitly says you know, there's no evidence <laughs> supporting like an, a date of eighty five. It's it's mm-hmm. a compromise date. Um, I think the strongest evidence we have is is uh, so speaking of somebody specifically dating their work, you have Josephus dating uh, Jewish antiquities uh, to the thirteenth year of the reign of Domitian. So that puts it in the, the year of 93, 94. And I think there's good reason to think that the author of Acts uh, and also Luke is, is using uh, Josephus's antiquities as a resource uh, supplying information and, and whatnot uh, that begins but doesn't end with the discussion of uh, 
Theudas and Judas in Acts 5, uh, with Gamaliel's report about these other rebellions uh, that are reported also in in Josephus. So I I, I agree with with uh, Pervo and others, especially Steve Mason, uh, who have written on that topic. I think uh, Luke and Acts are both uh, best dated after that, but that that just puts them in at least late nineties. Uh, so I think I usually say early second century because uh, that's that's a nice shorthand. But but it could have been at the very end of the first century uh, in in my judgment. Very nice. And, you know, I didn't gather that it was your uh, goal to uh, reassess the date with your uh, w- with your work here. But, um, you, you know, you can't help but weigh into little things like this uh, um, when you uh, approach the evidence. Uh, my, my next question for you, Michael, is um, rather basic. I'm always curious how uh, scholars get interested in their in the subjects um, that they uh, choose to tackle for a, a dissertation, long project, your first major project. Uh, how did you become interested in Luke Acts from this uh, sort of academic perspective? It's it's a little interesting when I when I applied to PhD programs, I assumed I would be working on Paul uh, and probably Paul and Empire, so not not far from where I ended up. Uh, but I was especially enamored with uh, Brigitte Call's book uh, Galatians Reimagined, uh, which came out just a, about a year before I started my PhD, and then. Uh, later, Harry Meyer's book, uh, Picturing Paul and Empire, which, which came out after I was was uh, through my coursework. But uh, that's the sort of thing I thought I would do when when I started my doctoral work. Uh, but once I decided to go to Claremont for my PhD and uh, I was going to be working with Dennis McDonald, I uh, told myself I should really acquaint myself with with Homer. <laughs> uh, it was an understatement. Uh, and so that summer before I started, I, I read through uh, the Iliad. I read it's in translation, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey. And then I, I made it maybe like a, a third or half of the way through the Aeneid before classes started. Uh, and then uh, one of the first assignments I had in a class with Dennis on the book of Acts was, was to read through the entire book of Acts. And a uh, good student that I was, I, I did it. Uh, and when I got to Acts 9, uh, and read a character named Aeneas, having just read uh, part of the Aeneid, uh, but and starting to understand uh, who that character was in in, in mythology, uh, I was I was struck by that, and that sort of set me on on the path uh, that I ended up. So I think it was it was both my uh, earlier interest in in interpreting the New Testament within its uh, Roman imperial context, uh, in combination with the specific context of studying uh, with Dennis Macdonald. Uh, that is uh, how I got to where I where I ended up. Wonderful, and um, you know, you certainly do deal with Paul and Empire issues uh, in in this book, and um, uh, I can see how uh, uh, working with Dennis probably uh, spurred you on. We'll get to Aeneas and the Aeneid in in a little bit, but um, I guess I can say, even though I haven't written within Luke Acts myself. <clears throat> Um, I do think I've read enough uh, of the scholarship to affirm that growing consensus among critical scholars that uh, it, it seems to be a later production, later than 85, perhaps into the uh, uh, um, second decade of the uh, second century. Um, so it becomes imperative, as you do in your book, to inquire into the sources for uh, for this author that we call Luke, the sources that he had his, at his disposal that he uh, um, uh, that he uses that he manipulates in a certain direction, 
And um, for the Gospel of Luke, we happen to know from the other Gospels where he gets much of his material, much, not all, of his material from. But uh, we're in a much more hazy or uh, precarious situation for the Book of Acts, uh, given that the sources for, the, for that book, uh, if they existed, have not survived. How have other scholars handled this basic problem uh, before you, including Dennis uh, McDonald, your uh, Dr. Vodder? And um, how have you proposed that we push beyond them? So in, in other words, what is your basic thesis here in Roman self-representation and the Lucan kingdom of God? Yeah, so I, at the risk of sounding pedantic, I actually like to differentiate between sources and models, which which can be sort of uh, lumped together as, as sources. Uh, but when I talk about sources, I like to uh, be specifically thinking about earlier texts that uh, an author uses to supply especially information uh, for the text it, up to and including like word for word uh, uh, borrowings. Like, so Mark was a source for the gospel of Luke, not only because it provided Luke with information about Jesus, but also because Luke takes a lot of uh, material from it. Um, uh, as, if I can interject, that's a great distinction to make. And I'll try to uh, remember oh, that you. language going forward models yeah. rather than sources. Very good. Yeah, and sometimes you, the, things can act as both. So with the Jewish scriptures, uh, they're a source for the gospel of, of Luke and, and for Acts in that it supplies the author with information about uh, biblical people and biblical history, uh, but is also used at times as a model for particular stories. And so so models I, I identify as, as earlier stories or, or uh, writings that are used as a source for uh, characterization for a structure of stories, um, and so that yeah, so these can overlap. So sometimes a piece of, of writing can be can both be a source and a model. Uh, sometimes it's only as a model, but but that's this is a little bit of precision I try to to add to uh, the discussion. Um, so in terms of uh, where things were before my monograph, uh, you mean specifically with Acts or with with Luke and Acts or just Luke? I was thinking more in terms of acts, but um, yeah, you can yeah. answer the question however uh, seems most uh, fitting for you. Sure. Yeah. So with acts, it's it's kind of a yeah, as you suggested, there, there's not much to really concretely hold on. You have a lot of uh, a lot of passages that sort of have a coherence and they're sort of strung together, and so it's easy to imagine uh, that there was a source that existed, but uh, uh, we don't really have evidence of that. Uh, but what I do in, in my book is I look at, uh, I go beyond what, what Dennis has done. So Dennis uh, introduces a lot of Greek literature, especially Homer and Euripides and the Socratics, as models for the book of Acts that sort of explain the way it's structured in certain places. Um, and, and I agree with a lot of what he does. Um, one thing that I've introduced is is looking at not only literature uh, like the Aeneid, which which is something that I, I do focus on, but also uh, more abstract forms of self representation by the the Roman Empire, uh, and so stories and uh, ideas about its foundational figures. Uh, so going back to Aeneas and Romulus, uh, up into more recent times. Uh, from the perspective of the early church, uh, Julius Caesar and Augustus, uh, the way that it presents these foundational figures and, and their relation to those who, who they are they are ruling, uh, 
and also the, the, the ways that it justifies its rule over those that it's ruling. Uh, so it's, it's conquest and its domination over, uh, over the provinces. Very good. So um, let's uh, dig in now to the book. And um, I guess I'll say a little bit about how uh, I understand it to be structured. You can disagree with that if you'd like. But you so you have an introduction and conclusion, pretty standard. And in the middle are uh, nine chapters, I believe, which um, uh, uh, use biblical evidence, uh, uh, basically uh, doing a little bit of exegesis of, of biblical passages and also comparing it to um, various things within Roman culture. In some cases, you marshal evidence from numismatics, from uh, Roman coins, for example. In some cases, you are comparing uh, Josephus, or you're bringing in Virgil and the Aeneid. And so you're comparing the biblical evidence with uh, similar things that are going on or out there or might be environmental or even more direct influences or models, as, we, as you uh, suggested, for uh, the author of, of Luke-Acts. Um, so we're not going to go into all nine of the examples in the nitty gritty. So we'll save something for the reader who is uh, interested in the book from uh, from our conversation. But um, let's uh, say something about some of the examples. So the, the first few chapters after your introduction deal with depictions of Jesus that are unique to the Gospel of Luke. So even though he does have his sources with Mark and possibly Matthew also, uh, um, it, these are uh, depictions of Jesus or ways that he shapes the story, perhaps, that are unique to uh, uh, the Lucan author. And he does so by um, comparisons with foundational Roman figures, such as Augustus, also known as Octavian, and uh, Romulus. Uh, how um, does Luke, in your uh, analysis, reframe Jesus as the more benevolent figure in comparison with these uh, two Roman heroes? And would this have been an obvious thing for someone in that environment, picking up, uh, uh, you know, not a, picking up or hearing the Gospel of Luke? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the two chapters uh, that you're asking about. Uh, what I try to do is uh, sort of establish uh, a very general understanding of a, a theme from Roman imperial rule. So especially uh, in the one chapter, uh, the way its economy was structured uh, and perceived to be structured uh, by elites and those in the provinces. Um, and in the other chapter, uh, the way that uh, Rome's violence toward uh, those that it conquers, it was uh, represented to them. And so primarily to make the point that these concepts were very uh, diffuse and, and widely understood and widely perceived and widely uh, more or less agreed upon. Uh, and within those contexts, I look at specific examples. Uh, on the one hand, I look at the res geste of Augustus, uh, which is the uh, document that Augustus had written up prior to his death to be published upon his death uh, that uh, goes through what he thinks of his thinks of thinks of as his accomplishments uh, as the the emperor uh, and on the other hand uh, the spe the specific example of, of Romulus's ascension uh, contrasting that with with Jesus's ascension uh, and so with with the August uh, with Augustus and the Resgiste, I, I compare that with uh, the ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, um, and then, as I said the, in the next chapter, the ascension of Jesus with the ascension of Romulus. Um, 
And so Jesus comes out as the superior figure in both of these uh, examples in slight ways. Um, um, do you want to walk through one of the two examples for us? Yeah, yeah. And and I'll differentiate. Uh, on the one hand, the, the comparison with the res geste is, is meant to be... Uh, more for a comparison's sake. It, it, I wouldn't be surprised if the author of, of Luke and X was aware of the Res Geste. Uh, it was well known. It was parodied by, uh, I believe it was Seneca, and it was imitated by, by subsequent uh, emperors. So it wouldn't be far-fetched to say that the author of, of Luke and X was aware of the Res Geste. But I don't make the argument that it is a, a response specifically to it. So in that case, it's, it's more of a... Uh, just a, a cultural comparison. In in the next case with the with the the ascensions, I do make the argument that it is uh, the the ascension of Romulus that is a a model, one of the models for for the ascension of Jesus in in Acts one. Um. So with with the ascension in Acts one, actually in both in both cases. Uh, I draw upon the Jewish scriptures as a resource for so so for for listeners who might be objecting that that the Jewish scriptures, especially the stories of Elijah and Elijah, are more readily apparent and obvious resources for for the author of Luke and Acts. I agree, uh, and and I do treat them uh, in a way that I think is appropriate. Uh, so it's actually in the the Gospel of Luke's imitation of uh, and enactment of the ministry of Elijah and Elisha through Jesus, uh, that this com- this contrast with uh, Augustus comes through. And then uh, it's through a comparison of the, the ascension of Jesus with that of Elijah, uh, which I think is one of the, the other primary model for, for the ascension in Acts 1. It's through that close comparison that I draw the conclusion that there are some elements uh, in the presentation of Acts 1 that are not accounted for by reference to the Elijah ascension. Uh, and that in fact, are accounted for by reference to the ascent of uh, of Romulus. So, for example, uh, you have a lot of similarities with with Elijah in the ascensions, uh, especially with the, the succession narratives and uh, the conveyance of the the spirit that empowered Jesus and Elijah, uh, being given to Jesus' disciples and Elisha. Uh, but uh, in contrast, Jesus is raised into heaven on a cloud, uh, and Elijah. Similarly, but not exactly the same, uh, goes into heaven in a whirlwind. Um, and Jesus has uh, a very kingdom-oriented speech right before he ascends, and, and Elijah doesn't really have anything similar to that. Uh, but we do have the well-known story of Romulus ascending into heaven at the end of his life, where there is a cloud that descends, and then it uh, lifts up, and he's no longer there. Uh, and you have actually a, a tradition of him coming back down later to to a specific witness and giving him a commission uh, that the Roman Empire will be known by its by its uh, its prowess in war, more or less, uh, which is in contrast to the the, the commission in in the the Book of Acts, where Jesus says, "You know, you will be my witnesses uh, in all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth." Uh, and so, for readers who who think of them together, there is a contrast uh, between. Uh, Romulus and and through Romulus the the, the Roman emperors and and so forth uh, who follow uh, as violent and as uh, dominating the world through through violence and Jesus who who wants has maybe a similar ambition in terms of uh, reach uh, 
but has a, a quite a different means. Uh, like there's, they're going to do similar things, but through the strength of testimony, you might say. Very nice. Uh, one thing that I don't think that I fully appreciated before I read your book was that, um, uh, you know, even though Romulus is a much you know older figure, there are stories that are uh, uh, written sort of afresh about him. Is it by Virgil himself that uh, that publishes these in the second uh, century BCE? Or you might uh, jog my memory of, of, of when these come about and when he gives this uh, fantastic report to uh, spread his kingdom. As it Yeah, were. you're probably thinking of Livy. Okay, yes, mm-hmm. that's it. That's right. But um, so even though uh, Romulus is a much older figure, there are stories that are uh, circulating afresh, um, uh, perhaps much closer to the time that uh, uh, Luke is uh, picking up the pen and writing uh, the Book of Acts. For sure, for sure. Uh, let's move on uh, beyond these comparisons to Jesus and and t- turn to some apostolic figures from the Book of Acts. So, uh, in the remainder of those uh, those meaty body chapters, uh, where you do some exegesis compared with uh, uh, Roman material. Um, you focus on the turning point of the book of Acts, which, as you say, is where the Gentile mission is uh, formally initiated through the work of Peter. Uh, in Acts chapter 9, for example, Peter performs two healings of named individuals before the introduction of the Cornelius episode, which is, you know, commonly thought of as the first uh, Gentile welcomed into the fold. Um, and this allows you to showcase what might be the heart of your mimesis criticism or your appeal to models. Uh, and you appeal uh, to Virgil's Aeneid, which is kind of the focus of uh, of, of, of your book in a, in a certain way. Even for many New Testament scholars, I think uh, the Aeneid prevails in a certain obscurity, uh, and you seem to have a very good handle on it. So I'll ask you a set of questions here uh, that you can respond to. Uh, what is the Aeneid, first of all, uh, and what ideological work does the Aeneid do for Roman ideology? Um, how does it relate to the Iliad and the Odyssey of Homer? And finally, uh, you can come to this last perhaps uh, after all that, what is going on with the healings of Aeneas and Tabitha in Acts? And uh, why have so many scholars missed the parallels that you uncover in these chapters by appeal to uh, uh, the Aeneid? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Aeneid is the uh, epic poem written by Virgil. Uh, it was finished as we know it uh, toward the end of the first century BCE. I think technically it's unfinished uh, in that Virgil wanted to, to polish it up more and in fact uh, gave instructions for it to be destroyed upon his death, uh, but they that w- those orders were disobeyed, thankfully. Uh, and so uh, it's a story of uh, that sets itself within sort of the mythological world of, of Homer. So that, that goes to, to uh, one of the questions you had in there, uh, its relation to the Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, so stepping back, <laughs> the Iliad is, is the, the first book by Homer. Uh, we don't have to, to discuss if Homer existed or, or anything like that, but it was believed to be by Homer by the time uh, first century or so. Uh, so the first book by Homer is about the Trojan War, the clash between the Greeks and the, the Trojans. Uh, because Paris abducted Helen, the wife of Menelaus, and uh, because when when uh, Helen was uh, chose her suitor, all the other suitors agreed that if somebody abducted her, they would all uh, who who are not selected would would form a pact and attack the person who who uh, abducted her. So when when Paris abducts um, Helen, it triggers the pact among all the the different Greek kings, uh, and so they attack. Uh, Troy. So uh, 
the Iliad is a story from several years into it's, it's like, I think it's just like maybe one year within, within the whole uh, 10 year Trojan war. Uh, and doesn't include the end even, but it, but it, uh, uh, includes the rage of Achilles, uh, against, uh, the other Greek Agamemnon. Uh, but then eventually the, the death of Hector, the, the Trojan, uh, prince or king, uh, at the hands of, of Achilles. Um, and that's, that's really the climax is, is, uh, Achilles killing Hector. Um, the sequel, if you will, uh, Homer's second uh, volume is, is the Odyssey, which is uh, was one of several stories that we think, but but the one that ex- that is still extant of the returns of these Greek kings after the Trojan War. This one specifically of Odysseus, uh, and so it tells the stories of uh, his ten year return back to uh, Ithaca. Uh, and his reunion with his family. Uh, so it tells the stories of his wanderings across the the sea and all the, his adventures with with uh, mythical creatures and uh, friendly people and and unfriendly people. And, uh, and then when he gets home uh, to to get rid of all the suitors who are are trying to to take Penelope, his wife, uh, and his his fortune. Uh, so the Aeneid sets itself within this story world, uh, literally and in terms of uh, genre. Uh, so the Aeneid is about Aeneas, uh, who is a Trojan a relative, I think a cousin of Hector. Uh, and so it tells the story of Aeneas, the Trojan, escaping the ruins of Troy. So it, it starts after uh, the Greeks have overtaken Troy. Uh, and so he and a remnant of Trojans escape. And then Aeneas has a very Odysseus-like travel over the seas and retraces a lot of Odysseus's steps. Uh, so readers of, of Homer will, will recognize these. Uh, and he makes his way down to Carthage, where he has a, a tryst with Dido, which we'll talk about. Uh, and then eventually makes it to Italy, where you have uh, something that again recalls uh, the, the Homeric story uh, source material, where he... Uh, is an outsider who takes somebody's fiance, uh, so it's Lavinia, who's engaged to Turnus, uh, but then uh, she goes with Aeneas, and then there's a battle between the, the, these Trojans who have, have come across the, the seas uh, and the Latins led by Turnus. And the climax of this story is Aeneas killing Turnus, much like uh, Achilles killed uh, Agamemnon. Uh, excuse me, Hector. Uh, and and amid all of that in the Aeneid, you have uh, a lot of very explicit projections of this ancient time to the the modern time. So uh, for them, modern so first century BCE, the, the reign of of Augustus, where uh, Aeneas uh, rec- uh, recalls Aeneas being the offspring of Aphrodite or, or uh, Venus in, in the Latin, um, and Poseidon. It's Poseidon in, in the in the in the Homeric hymns, I can't remember who makes the promise in, in the Aeneid, but there's there's a promise of an eternal kingdom uh, that that will start from Aeneas, and so in the Aeneid, it's explicitly identified that Augustus is uh, this descendant, and he is inaugurating this eternal reign uh, that uh, is promised to Aeneas, um, and so it functions politically in the first century BCE as as a form of legitimation. Uh, it functions as a way of uh, justifying at this point, so, so Virgil doesn't doesn't uh, invent the idea that the Romans are descendants of 
uh, Trojans and, and Aeneas specifically. It's it's been sort of in the air for for a couple hundred years, but it acts as a way of um, justifying that uh, connection, even though there's no sort of ethnic ancestral connection with the Trojans. Uh, that we know of, uh, there is nevertheless. I don't think the genealogical of... records were preserved, unfortunately. Yeah, right. No, no, not not to our satisfaction, I'm sure. Uh, but there's nevertheless a mythological uh, justification for for connecting uh, Augustus with with the Trojans and specifically Aeneas with that uh, sort of divine connection and that, especially the, the divine promise of of an eternal empire to follow. Uh, so looking back at your questions, I might uh, bring it up again so that uh, listeners are reminded of where that I went with the uh, set of questions that I posed to you there. That was a, a great background on the Iliad, the Odyssey and how the Aeneid connects to it. And I like the idea of sort of it being part of the same uh, uh, cinematic or mythological universe that uh, uh, Virgil uh, latches onto uh, with the Aeneid. Uh, my next, uh, uh, where I went with the next questions was about um, Aeneas and Tabitha in the book of Acts and uh, why these two names are so significant for you. Um, you go into detail about how Aeneas is not exactly a common name in, in the East at this time. And so um, why have, uh, uh, the question I asked is, why have so many scholars missed the parallels that you uncover in these chapters of Acts to uh, uh, Virgil's work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so this is uh, with the Aeneas chapter. That was uh, I alluded to it earlier, where that first semester at Claremont, I I almost you know fell out of my chair when I encountered the name Aeneas in the Book of Acts, uh, and so that that was sort of what gave birth to uh, what is this chapter uh, and and a JBL article uh, before it. Um, so I argue that uh, whatever's going on with the story of Aeneas, Peter healing Aeneas. Uh, and, you know, I, I have nothing really to contribute about how long Aeneas has been a paralytic or uh, anything like that. But I was struck by the fact that Aeneas is named. It's not common for uh, individuals in Luke and Acts who are recipients of healing to be named. And so, and so I review uh, the cases where, where they are named. Uh, and it's always because either the person is is clearly known to the audience, like Paul, uh, or their name is significant. So like Eutychus, uh, whose name means lucky, and he falls out a window and, and survives uh, what three-story fall or whatever. So he is lucky. So, so it's a name that makes sense uh, because of the meaning of the name. Uh, and I think most, most scholars uh, prior and maybe still uh, would suggest that this is a name that was known to a community uh, and that's why it is is retained. But I, I argue that it, it's, it's probably more credible, like maybe that's possible, I don't know, uh, is maybe more credible to think of it as uh, uh, playing, so it's retain, either retained in the story or added to the story by Luke, uh, the author of Acts, uh, because of the cultural associations with the name Aeneas. Uh, and so I argue that those associ- associations are the city of Rome, the, the Roman Empire, uh, for, for these reasons, especially the Aeneid, but it predates the Aeneid um, and uh, is, is beyond the Aeneid as well. Uh, and so uh, if you look at the structure of the book of Acts, uh, a, lot of, a lot of scholars will look to Jesus's commission in Acts 1.8 as a, a signal for how to read the structure of Acts. So Jesus says, you will be my witnesses and Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Uh, 
and you get a, a number of summary statements along the way throughout the book of Acts. Uh, but only one of them, I, I think, uh, recalls that earlier commission in, in 1.8 in terms of geogra- geography. Uh, and that is Acts 9.31, uh, where the narrator says, you know, the mission is going well and their success in Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Uh, and I say, well, readers who remember Acts 1.8 would think, well, that's interesting. What about the ends of the earth, the end of the earth? Um, and the very next verse introduces Peter and uh, this, this person named Aeneas. Uh, and so... It's, I don't think it's unreasonable to say that for readers who, who possess this competence uh, of knowing the association of, of Aeneas with Rome uh, to draw the conclusion that the direction of the narrative in Acts is going to Rome. And it very much helps uh, that the narrative does end in Rome, uh, as we know. Uh, so it's uh, maybe a little bit of a, a, a fulfillment. Confirmation, maybe, of, of, of this way of reading it. Would you call uh, it a metonym? Uh, I don't know if you use that language in, in your book, but uh, yeah. it, sure, it sure seems like Aeneas could be read as a metonym for Rome. That's that's the word I use. Oh, uh, okay. That 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 end. Uh, I'm sure that's sign, like literary then. signpost, uh, okay, right. one or the other. Uh, yeah, as, as a met, as a metonymy for uh, the Roman Empire. Uh, mm-hmm. For if sure. that were your only example, that might you know people might be able to brush that aside. But you also do the same work with Tabitha, which is a healing that that follows shortly thereafter. How is that one related to uh, uh, what ha- the narrative of the Aeneid? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I argue that uh, so it, with with the Aeneas story, I don't think you need competence, uh, familiarity with with Virgil. Uh, to to read the narrative that the way that I argue with the Tabitha passage, you definitely do. <laughs> uh, maybe not maybe not like knowledge of Latin and and access to a manuscript, uh, but you need to know Virgil's story in the Aeneid to to get to the reading that I that I argue for. Uh, so in the Aeneid, uh, according to Ovid and and others, the most the most popular passage of the Aeneid is is Book Four which is, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Ver, uh, Aeneas in Carthage uh, with his encounter with uh, the Carthaginian uh, queen, uh, Dido. Uh, and in several places in Book 4, Virgil refers to Dido as a deer, as a wounded deer. You have uh, Dido dreaming of Aeneas, like literally hunting her, and there, there's this... Uh, so repeated uh, theme in in the Aeneid of of hunting deer. So uh, it makes sense that, that here again you're thinking of Dido as a deer, um, and she does end up dead. So she uh, thinks that Aeneas and she are married, um, but then Aeneas abandons her uh, out of his uh, commitment to uh, establishing Rome, uh, more or less, and uh, in her despair she kills herself, uh, and so. Uh, simply, I argue that in the book of Acts, when you have this dead woman, uh, and she's named Tabitha and Dorcas, uh, Tabitha being a trans, uh, transliteration of the Aramaic into Greek and Dorcas being the Greek word that, uh, is the translation of, of, uh, Tabitha. Uh, both of them mean deer or gazelle. Uh, gazelle, I think is a common translation, but I think deer is, is, 
uh, maybe better, <laughs> uh, or maybe fawn. I've actually uh, suggested before, like a. If you're translating it, you should you should say maybe, maybe uh, use a an English word that means what Tabitha means. So something like fawn. Um, so for readers who who are reading Acts, uh, you've just had Peter heal a man named Aeneas, and then he encounters a dead woman named Deer. I don't think it's it's asking too much to suggest that some readers uh, familiar with Virgil would think of Dido, um, and the context of of Dido and the way she, uh, in Virgil, it seems to be a reference to Cleopatra um, and uh, can represent uh, what happens to those who stand in the way of fulfilling the destiny of Rome, whether Dido trying to keep Aeneas from going to Italy or or, or Cleopatra opposing Augustus, uh, who, who would become Augustus. Um, it seems like a straightforward message of, you know, collateral damage. If you get in the way, like your, your life is expendable. Uh, but in the book of Acts, we have this story about the progression of the kingdom of God uh, with the evocation of the story of Dido. Uh, but Peter raises her back to life, which feels like a straightforward uh, reversal of the, the theme from uh, the Aeneid. Uh, so that's what I argue. Uh, I've, I've told people in the past that, of all of my arguments, and I think this this extends to everything I've published since this book. This is maybe the most uh, conjectural <laughs> argument that most conjectural argument that I make, uh, and I'm fine with that. Uh, it doesn't mean I don't think it's it's credible, and I don't think it's it's not that I don't think it's uh, correct. Uh, but I'm maybe more open here than other places to people not being convinced. Um, I think why why haven't people seen this with with the Tabitha stuff? Uh, it's kind of difficult to get there. You you have to to expect a lot of competence from from a reader to say it's a credible reading of the passage. I don't think it's asking too much competence, obviously, or else I wouldn't be pushing it. Uh, with the Aeneas stuff, I'm a little surprised. It's it's one of those things that it, it feels like I can't believe nobody has has made this this argument previously. Um, and you have, there was one article in a very obscure journal that almost sort of suggested something like this. Uh, but to my knowledge, that's, that was all. Um, so I'm, I'm surprised. I think in, in part it's attributable to a lack of, uh, familiarity with, with, uh, the Aeneid specifically and, and, uh, Roman mythology generally, uh, and on the other hand, you sort of pair that with a, a, a conviction or a, or a likely conviction of scholars that the Aeneid is is not an appropriate piece of comparanda. Like there's a, there's a categorical a disjuncture between the two. It's just not appropriate. Um, so I think that's why uh, th- this argument hasn't been made before. But but the Aeneas one, I'm a little surprised that that I had uh, been the first one to, to propose it. And perhaps also an assumption that, you know, the Aeneid is so far afield from us and therefore it may, may well have been just as far afield from the Lucan author as purview as well. Uh, there might also be an, an interest in, you know, accepting Luke acts as, as transmitting historical material rather than uh, being willing to lean on models as you have uh, suggested. 
Um, let's move to the Cornelius episode that follows this, and uh, that was a great explanation of the of the Tabitha stuff. With I, I, I think it's uh, fully reasonable to uh, see how the apostolic band, as they encounter the wounded deer, they wouldn't just leave him behind. They would uh, accept them into the fold. They would revive them and bring them into, you know, the the the, the growing kingdom of God, as it were. But when we come to the Cornelius episode that follows, um, you evaluate this depiction of him kneeling or otherwise uh, showing obeisance in some way to Peter. And this allows you to draw on comparisons with, uh, as I mentioned, as I alluded to earlier, numismatic and material evidence where Cornelius's gesture reflects an assumed sort of secondary status that Gentiles might assume themselves to have in comparison to Judeans with respect to the kingdom of God. Therefore, you know, they're not the first ones to be welcomed in, and therefore they have to show their secondary status in some way. Uh, How do you argue your case here, and uh, how does Luke similarly negotiate the inclusion of Gentiles in the kingdom that can be compared back to Virgil's in the end? Yeah, so uh, with with the Cornelius prostrating himself at the feet of of Peter, I remember I was th- there was a moment where this this idea occurred to me. I was I was reading an article about the Cornelius story, but it wasn't about anything like this. But it just gave that description of Cornelius bowing before Peter, and I had the epiphany of oh my goodness, this is the exact opposite of of Judea Capta coins. Um, so. I mean, you might explain what that is for people yeah, yeah. who aren't familiar with the image. Of course. Uh, so Judea Capta coins uh, are uh, not an exceptional coin series uh, among among the Roman minting. Uh, but the, the, so the, there are a lot of coins that, that celebrate, uh, especially uh, military victories over uh, outside people groups. Uh, and one way to do that is to uh, depict like a Roman soldier standing up or like a, a pile of uh, armor as a trophy, but, but it looks very much like a standing soldier. Uh, and next to that soldier or pile of armor, a Judean, usually a woman, but not always, uh, bound on the ground uh, in submission. Uh, so that <clears throat> speaks to the semiotics of uh, Roman self-representation with respect to the provinces. Um and so it took me a little while to, to figure out what exactly to do with that. Um, but then I, I situated that image within the context and the flow of what happens in, in Acts 10. Um, you have uh, very clearly a, a setup about getting what I think, I think Cornelius is the first Gentile in Acts uh, to, be, to be incorporated into the kingdom of God. Um, so there's a, there's a long sort of setup to that point. And Cornelius comes to uh, the house of, no, Peter comes to the house of Cornelius, I think. Uh, when Peter gets there, Cornelius prostrates himself and, and evokes for readers who, who are aware of, of Judea coins or other types of representation like that, uh, this sort of image of Roman self-representation, uh, this Roman logic of imperialism that says, uh, we will let you be included within this, the empire, but you are lesser. Uh, and so it has Cornelius enacting that almost. Uh, so like he's about to be uh, initiated into the kingdom of God. Uh, and he enacts this logic that is known to Romans. Like I am the one who is uh, being initiated into it. And so I am assuming this lower position, uh, the submissive position. Uh, 
And it's a striking reversal because you have here a Judean man standing up and a Roman soldier prostrating himself. Um, but Peter rejects this and says, you know, stand up. I'm also a man. Uh, and then goes on to preach to him about uh, God showing no partiality. So talking about this, the relation of Jews and non-Jews with this Jesus-focused uh, Jewish movement, um, there is no status disparity between between Jews and non-Jews. And this can be read, uh, maybe, maybe there are multiple ways this can be read, but I, I argue that it can be read as uh, not only communicating about the kingdom of God, uh, according to Luke, but also as a critique of uh, the Roman way of doing things, of uh, incorporating outsiders, but but only a, as a lesser. So uh, how do I relate that to the Aeneid? Uh, so I argue that uh, there's not necessarily specific things pointing to the Aeneid uh, in this passage or, or elsewhere uh, later in Acts, that is. But I think there are, uh, on the one hand, you have the Aeneas and Dido stuff. So that helps some readers think of the Aeneid. I think later in Acts, you have a lot of circumstantial parallels uh, with the Aeneid. Uh, and so maybe we can think back to the to my review of, of the storyline of uh, Homer's stories and the way that, that the Aeneid interjects itself. Uh, so the Aeneid is set after uh, the, the events of the Iliad. In the Iliad, the climax is the death of Hector. Um, and then in the Aeneid, you have a new main character, Aeneas, and not long into it, uh, the protagonist, arguably Hector, of that first earlier story, uh, so Hector from the Iliad, the ghost of Hector appears to Aeneas and tells him to go to Rome, more or less, uh, for for imperial purposes. Um, so you have a, a story set after an earlier story, and the ghost of that, the, the protagonist of the earlier story appears to the new protagonist and tells him to go to Rome. In the book of Acts, you have a new protagonist, Paul, uh, and... This, if we conceptualize Acts as a sequel to the Gospel of Luke, the protagonist of Luke is obviously Jesus, uh, and Jesus is resurrected, so he doesn't have a ghost, he has a resurrected form, and that resurrected form appears to Paul uh, and tells him he has to go to Rome. And so those sort of unique constellation of circumstances, I'm unaware of it being reproduced outside of of Acts and and the Aeneid. Uh, Maybe it is, I haven't read everything. Uh, I think that suggests that it's that the author of Acts has the Aeneid in mind and it permits readers to, to make further comparisons between what is done uh, in the Aeneid and what is done in Acts. Uh, and so, so we've talked about how uh, a, a big uh, ideological project of the Aeneid is to justify the uh, sort of the appropriation of the legacy of the Trojans by, by the, uh, by the Italians. Um, and the way that works out is is mostly sort of behind the curtains uh, in the you know on Olympus you might say if these were Homeric deities instead of Virgilian, uh, so it's it's the gods who work it out. So Juno and uh, uh, and all of uh, all of them uh, <laughs> they they sort it out. Right? So there, there's a, like there are explicit no- negotiations uh, about. 
you know, what's going to happen. They'll keep the name uh, of the Latins, but they'll keep the identity of the Trojans. Like the, the name, the Trojans will, will fade away, but uh, they will be the heirs of, of this, uh, this uh, legacy. Uh, and so it's possible to think of the book of Acts as doing something similar. Um, I, my, my sort of thinking on the, the relation between Jews and non-Jews in the book of Acts has, has uh, matured more than, than when I wrote that chapter. But I, I don't think I'm, I would disagree necessarily with anything I said, uh, but I might present it differently. Uh, because it's, it's, you can see it's, it's maybe easy to, to, to draw from that, that, okay, well, the book of Acts is trying to do something similar, trying to evoke this model of the Aeneid to justify non-Jews appropriating the legacy of Jews despite their uh, sort of non-ethnic uh, uh, connection to ancient Israel, for instance. Um, and I, I, I'm not convinced that that is precisely what's happening. Uh, but I think there is, there is an analogy, at least, in that you have uh, sort of the, the, the introduction of uh, Cornelius, the first non-Jew to, to the kingdom of God. Uh, there's a lot of divine orchestration happening uh, that can, I think, be read as modeled on you know, any events from the Iliad. Uh, and interestingly, uh, maybe this speaks to the point I'm trying to make. So the stories being imitated, or, or allegedly uh, being imitated from the Iliad, show divine intervention in the story of, of the Iliad with the result of, of a lot of car, of carnage. Uh, so a lot of Greeks are killed need, needlessly. And th- these, these stories are imitated in Virgil uh, with the same sort of effect, the same sort of presentation of the gods. Like, uh, people die because of their meddling, uh, even if it's toward the, this, this purpose of, of unification of, of Trojans and, and Latins. Uh, and so to the extent that readers uh, in the Cornelius story think of these models, Homer and and uh, Virgil, uh, you get a contrast again. So, so God does meddle in these ways, uh, but the God of, of the Jews, of the Jesus followers, uh, doesn't do so for anybody's destruction or for their humiliation or for retribution. It, it, this God does it uh, for the salvation of, of non-Jews and, and, and uh, Cornelius' family and, and so on. Uh, and so there's a contrast that emerges uh, from uh, from putting acts within con- in conversation with with uh, the works works like the Aeneid, uh, even at times when it's maybe not necessarily directly interacting with it, uh, how's that? Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Um, <clears throat> thanks for uh, going through all of that for us. Um, you, you mentioned Paul, and I would be remiss if I didn't bring up um, a, a work of yours that appeared outside this book, but you also, I think, cite within this book. So I think it's fair game here. Um, before I read this revised dissertation, I knew of your work uh, through a JBL article called uh, Better Call Paul Saul, which, of course, was uh, very well-timed. It came out while Better Call Saul was uh, still uh, on air. Um, but anyway, uh, you depict uh, Luke there, interestingly, as an innovative author, I think, uh, it, which would be um, a characterization that you continue throughout this book and throughout your work, who perhaps, um, uh, if I can use the word invent here, invents the Damascus Road experience or embellishes it, perhaps. Uh, uh, and also the name change for Paul from Saul to Paul, uh, as most people assume is a historical reality. Uh, and you say that this happens kind of on the basis of 
Septuagint narratives about a King Saul, uh, well, King Saul who uh, precedes David, and an ancient Greek tale by Euripides. Um, and I think, as I said, this made its way into your footnotes or something. Uh, but regardless, I see you performing a similarly uh, incisive level of mimetic criticism in that article as you do in this book. And I wanted to ask if you would share sort of uh, the argument that you have there about uh, Paul uh, uh, uh taking on this Saul persona from via Luke and this becoming sort of his uh, backstory, as it were. For many scholars, I think Paul's name change comes in a very odd place uh, in that it happens not immediately post-conversion after the conversion experience, but subsequent to this when he uh, encounters a Roman official named Sergius Paulus. So how do you navigate these questions in your uh, analysis of, of Paul with an X? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, so the way I framed that article is about, uh, especially about the name change from from Saul to Paul, um, and I think it's I think it it has been common and probably continues to be common uh, at the popular level and, and among preachers to state or to assume that Paul's name change from Saul to Paul after his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, uh, which is true, uh, but it's not immediately after, like like they're suggesting. Right, so there, it's there's the analogy of uh, Abram and Abraham, or or Israel and Jacob. So uh, there was a, a sort of epiphanic moment in somebody's life, and then their name changes to match their new identity. Uh, but that's not what happens in Acts. Uh, so so Saul, uh, as he's called, has has this road uh, Damascus road experience where he's encountered by Jesus. Uh, Saul is persecuting the followers of Jesus, and and. Jesus is why are you persecuting me? Uh, and Saul is blinded, depending on which which account in Acts you read, uh, uh, and then is healed, but then becomes a proclaimer of Jesus. He goes on, uh, even though he has the reputation of a uh, persecutor of the church, he proclaims Jesus as the Son of God uh, in, in Damascus, I think, is sort of the end of, of Acts 9. Uh, it's only in Acts 13 that his name changes, and that's in a, a very interesting, a very uh, densely intertextual in my interpretation uh, episode with with Sergius Paulus and the the Jewish non uh, false prophet so-called uh, bar Jesus who's also called Alumus um, and so how to make sense of all this I I say uh, well I think there are two literary two literary models that that can be read as uh, structuring what Luke is doing, and, and you've mentioned them. So one is is King Saul from the Jewish scriptures, and the other is uh, the story from Euripides about uh, Dionysus and King Pentheus. Um, so the, the presentation of Saul as a persecutor of the early church uh, has a lot of verbal similarities with, with both the stories about King Saul and the story of Pentheus persecuting Dionysus. Uh, and I argue that uh, the name Saul uh, is, as you say, an, an invention of the author of Luke uh, as a part of this, this program of associating uh, Paul, at least as his persecuting identity, with uh, King Saul and his persecution of David. Uh, and this maybe comes to the fore most clearly when you compare uh, this anomalous saying of, of Jesus to Saul on the road to Damascus, why are you persecuting me? Uh, which is confusing because he has not been persecuting Jesus. Jesus is not on the scene as Jesus' followers. Uh, but uh, 
Saul does persecute David and David asks why he's persecuting him. So not, not uh, exact word for word correspondences, but, but very, very similar circumstantial uh, correspondences between the two. Um, and so that could be enough to help explain that episode. Uh, like Saul of Tarsus is persecuting Jesus, just like King Saul persecuted David, uh, especially since uh, Jesus is uh, identified as the son of David. Um, but it doesn't explain why his name doesn't change uh, right after the story. But if you think, if you bring in uh, Euripides into the the mix, the, the Bacchae, uh, then maybe there's a way of making sense of it. Uh, because in the Bacchae, a, a major premise of the story is that, uh, so King Penthus is Dionysus's cousin. Uh, so this might take a little backstory, but so... Uh, Dionysus's mother, Semele, is impregnated by Zeus, uh, but people don't believe her when she says as much. Uh, and uh, I believe it's Hera uh, comes down and convinces Semele to ask Zeus to reveal his true nature to her uh, because, because she's jealous of, of this mortal who's been impregnated. Uh, Semele foolishly does so, and uh, Zeus's true nature is, of course, a lightning bolt. And so when, when she asks him this and he, he complies, uh, Semele dies uh, from, from the lightning strike. Uh, but Zeus saves Dionysus by, by uh, bringing him to, uh, to birth himself, placing, placing Dionysus in his thigh. Uh, so anyway, uh, Semele's family thinks that she dies by lightning bolt strike because she's lying about being impregnated by Zeus. Uh, and so... The story of the Bacchae is Dionysus returning to his hometown with his followers from, from what we call Asia Minor uh, in order to take revenge on his extended family, his aunts especially, and, and their, uh, one of his aunts' sons, uh, King Penthus, because they disbelieve his, his mother and the claim that he was the son of Zeus, the son of God. Uh, and so uh, there are a lot of verbal parallels between the presentation of Saul and uh, and King Penthus, and that becomes most clear in the third iteration in Acts 26, where you get the you know, three words uh, that are, are kind of a, a quotation from the Bacchae. Jesus says, you shouldn't kick against the goads, uh, which is what Dionysus says to Penthus. Um, I would rather, uh, excuse me, uh, I was trying to quote what, <laughs> what Penthus says, but I can't remember it exactly. Uh, so anyway, uh, for readers who make that association, maybe on a second or third reading through Acts, uh, when they get when they get to it in Acts nine again, uh, it might make sense to them when they see Saul being characterized as a Penthus-like figure, being having this epiphanic encounter with with the risen Jesus, just like Dionysus has this encounter with, excuse me, just like Penthus has this encounter with Dionysus. Um, Reader, if you ask readers of the Bacchae, what should Penthus have done when encountered by uh, Dionysus? The answer, I think the, the correct answer should be something like, he should have proclaimed that Dionysus was the son of Zeus. Um, and so when Paul, excuse me, Saul, having been uh, experienced his encounter with Jesus, uh, goes on to preach, he, he in fact does specifically say Jesus is the son of God. Which, which might otherwise be a sort of a, a non sequitur, but, but within the context of the Bacchae uh, as a, a framing model kind of makes sense. Uh, and 
in that story, he still has his identity as a godfighter, Saul does, that is. And so he sort of shows, embodies the correct response of a godfighter when confronted by the god you're fighting uh, is to proclaim that that god uh, as the son of god or, or that person as the son of god. Um, and so it gets more complicated with with Acts thirteen with when with the name changes. So I don't think we should we should maybe go down that road. But it's it's again an imitation of the Bacchae, I think. Uh, and Dennis McDonald has argued this before I did. Um, but but it involves a lot of uh, switches, uh, and so readers who are attentive to those switches uh, can maybe uh, expect what's happening. So you have uh, characters that that plot onto uh, characters from Acts thirteen that plot onto the story from the Bacchae, but in certain ways their roles reverse, uh, and this is the the scene where Paul's name changes. Uh, and so you might anticipate that with amid all these reversals and changes, that this will be the time where Paul's identity changes from a god fighter uh, into a proclaimer of that god. So he becomes instead of a Penthus figure, a Dionysus figure, uh, which he he uh, uh, which is how he's characterized over the, the next few chapters until I think he he uh, becomes more of a, a, a Socratic figure, uh, beginning in Acts seventeen. Uh, even though it may sound convoluted, the whole uh, uh, <laughs> walkthrough that you that you gave there, I think it does speak to the method, a similar method that you follow uh, in the book as well. Um, I it it to... sounds convoluted. You're right, and, and but I, I implore uh, listeners, uh, it, it does make sense, uh, and it, it is it's very interesting. Uh, but it does take some competence, uh, which is is foreign. It's foreign to us, but it wasn't foreign to to a lot of ancient. Uh, uh, audience members of, for a, a writing. Exactly. And uh, the word competence, you say cultural competence several times in the book as well, that uh, it requires a certain competence with uh, ancient stories that are circulating in the ways of uh, reversal and mimesis, um, as it's uh, as it's put. Um, I wonder if you might say a little bit about uh, the competence, because um, this is sort of a question that came to mind as I was reading your book. Um, did, did most Christians who were probably uh, illiterate and maybe had not, you know, read the stories in the kind of depth that we are able to today. Did most Christians just simply not possess this kind of competence to see the mimesis that's going on? And I, I think I thought, especially the example of Irenaeus, because Irenaeus at the end of the second century is, uh, you know, kind of the first one who ties uh, Luke and Acts to the same author and that author is Luke and he's a companion of Paul and you know he's relaying stories as they actually happen because he's a companion of Paul's uh, so is someone like Irenaeus even uh, lacking in the cultural competence necessary to have you know uh, seen the stories for what they were mm-hmm. I think this is this is an area a topic in which my thinking has matured. I think in relation to when I wrote this, though I don't disagree with it. I think when I was writing this book, I was I was operating from the premise that uh, a lot of these stories, Homer especially, uh, and and certainly some Euripides and and even Virgil, were popular enough to be broadly known even among Christians. Whether or not most uh, of them were familiar, I don't I don't I can't say. I don't have the the data to make make that determination, but. But I think I think it's reasonable to suggest that readers, some readers uh, of the early Christian literature, would be familiar with these stories and could could make these make these recognitions. More recently, I've been thinking uh, 
uh, in response to to work by by uh, Robin Walsh and uh, Jan Heilman and and others thinking about the material conditions of of literary production, um, and and they argue that, uh, in my words, not theirs, uh, that literature in antiquity, at least what we have evidence for, is literature being composed for uh, the circle of readers, uh, highly literate readers of friends of the, the person writing it. Uh, those, that's the primary audience, uh, for, for a work being written, uh, and it's only then later circulated beyond that circle. Uh, and given that such readers would be highly educated and, and literate elites, I think gives more credence to the idea that, uh, these references to very popular works would have been recognized by such readers. Um, and it's not surprising under that way of understanding uh, the material conditions of, of ancient composition uh, that as things circulated beyond that circle, the author can no longer anticipate specific things that, that readers would be familiar with. So, so in an initial writing composition, for your immediate circle of friends, you know the stories they know. You know their familiarity with with um, different works of, of literature. Uh, beyond that, you don't know. And so I think that's, it, it, it may sound a bit like a, a way of justifying these post facto, but uh, I, I think since there are people working on this <laughs> who are not invested in my project, uh, and I think they make good arguments for it, um, that it's that it's okay to bring this in as a, a resource for for helping understand why this might make sense. So Irenaeus may not understand this, but Irenaeus was not in the immediate circle of the author of of Lucanax, uh, several many many iterations away from that, uh, and so it's it's not surprising that somebody who who does not have the same sensibilities of the author uh, is not reading it for the same purpose, perhaps. Um, would come at it very differently. Yeah, that's great food for thought. And if we think, you know, uh, of the time that perhaps is between Irenaeus and the composition of Luke Acts, 70 years, if we think back 70 years ago, uh, from where we are in 2023, yeah, we, we don't necessarily have, uh, I guess that would be the area, the era of McCarthyism. We would need to do a lot of research to understand what is fully going on in that, in the sphere of the early 1950s, uh, to uh, uh, have a full contextual ability to comprehend that period. And, um, and Irenaeus perhaps doesn't quite have uh, that ability because the, uh, the, the data for him doesn't. If I can introduce an anecdote, uh, it's my understanding that bunny rabbits do not, do not uh, of their own volition, seek out carrots. Like they'll eat, they'll eat carrots if presented carrots, but it's not like a part of their natural diet. They don't seek them out. But, but I'm guessing you assumed they did. Would you say that? Uh, I might have questioned how they dig them out of the ground, but uh, um, yeah, okay, I'm following you here. You, you, you picture yeah. bunny rabbits with carrots, and yeah. you yeah. think, what's up, Doc? Uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> My understanding is that the reason we do is because of Bugs Bunny. Uh, Bugs Bunny holding a carrot with like the greenage on on the end was a reference to a movie character from uh, Clark Clark Gable maybe I I should have probably looked that up before I said it but uh so so there's a movie where a character does this and so when Bugs Bunny first does it 
the audience is expected to recognize the reference. Uh, but then it became sort of a staple of Bugs Bunny's uh, persona to such an extent that I think most people today would assume that bunny rabbits love eating carrots. Uh, and yeah, it's what you give bunny, but it, but I think a, a pet nutritionist would, would advise against it. That's my understanding anyway. But that speaks to the way in which uh, it's it's it should not be surprising for this to have happened uh, 2,000 years ago, that perhaps uh, an author made a reference that, that he thought his audience would recognize, and 70 years later already, uh, this was going unnoticed uh, um, in some quarters. I, I would argue it, is, it was recognized in, in some other quarters, perhaps, but... Uh, yeah, that's great food for thought. And uh, I didn't think we'd be going into Bugs Bunny today, but uh, there, there you go. But You're that's, welcome. That's the comparison of Bugs Bunny <laughs> to Luke X. Right. Um, okay, uh, let's get let's uh, talk about, um, uh, I think, a debate that you intended to contribute to kind of early on, when, uh, even before this became your dissertation project. But as you said, uh, uh, empire criticism was uh, an important part of um, kind of your mindset as you were coming into your PhD program. So uh, I'm sure you're aware of the active research scene discussing the degree to which uh, um, early Christians such as Paul, such as Luke, might have been favorable to or critical to aspects of, uh, of Roman imperial rule, which uh, is kind of the fact of life, right? It's the, it's the governing, um, uh, it's the ruling authorities over them, whether they are provincials or whether they are, you know, Italians, as we might say. Um, some scholars find that criticism is overt. Some say that criticism is not present at all, that we you know just can't track it. And some look for coded criticism sort of in the subtext or the hidden transcripts of these books. Given for you uh, these this full range of allusions, imitations, reconfigurations, uses of models that kind of reverse the flow of the story or reverse the uh, ideals to show how superior the kingdom of God is to the kingdom of Rome. Um, given all of this that you find reflected in Luke Acts, what is your conclusion or maybe your gut feeling about the positionality of its author uh, to the Roman Empire? And <laughs> after that question, uh, do you think that Luke is typical of early Christians in this regard or more of an outlier or something else? Mm -hmm. With the second question, I would say, I don't know. <laughs> I think that there's work to be done. Uh, but so what do I think about the author of Luke and Acts? Um, I'm of the camp that is maybe skeptical of, of how much we can say about the author specifically. So I'm hesitant to say uh, very straightforwardly what I think the author thinks. I think you can make more or less credible uh, assertions about what the author likely thought. Uh, and so that's, that's what I try to do. I try to be very cautious. I'm not trying to, to have a definitive take on anything uh, of the sort. So I, I, I'd say it's, it's credible to argue that the author of Acts, or at least the texts of Acts and, and Luke can be read as uh, expressing uh, disapproval, you might say, of, of certain aspects of Roman uh, rule. So I think it's very, it's very important to be careful not to over- uh, generalize about the Roman Empire because there are so many facets that affect people in different ways. Um, and for you, uh, where you'd be most willing to speak is, I guess, the places where Luke reverses 
cultural stories and, you know, tries to show that, you know, the kingdom of God is about salvation and not about destruction and not about, you know, leaving behind the wounded deer for, uh, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So, so issues of, of imperial violence and imperial extraction. Uh, I mean, again, I don't want to overstate the extent to which the author disagrees or disapproves of, of these aspects of Roman rule, but I think there, there are ways in which, uh, disapproval can be detected within the text, um, and not everything I do in in this in this book is about looking for disapproval of Roman rule. So there's there's a section on comparing the the birth of of Jesus with the birth of Augustus and their lineages, and I don't think there's any any inherent disapproval involved. It, in fact, it seems to be uh, the author of Luke uh, calling to mind this sort of cultural repertoire that the audience would know about and saying, hey. Think of that when you think about Jesus. Uh, and so there's maybe competition involved, but not necessarily disapproval. Um, and so there's, there's, it's, it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag uh, from, from my study alone, so not, not to mention the studies of others uh, when it comes to the posture toward Roman rule. Um, uh, I guess uh, maybe a follow-up question that uh, mm-hmm. relates to implications of the kind of mimetic criticism or leaning on models as you have uh, have you as you have pursued here um <clears throat> i must uh, pose the question of historicity of luke x uh, within all this so by most estimations he is sequentially the third evangelist that comes along second or third generation christian he kind of admits as much in that prologue of of uh, the gospel um Acts is becoming recognized increasingly as a late coming book, perhaps second century. And um, by your analysis, Luke develops many of his characteristic uh, narratives from these reconfigurations of existing environmental influences or, you know, um, works that he's intimately familiar with, like, uh, like the Aeneid, perhaps. And yet there's a pretty widespread tendency in New Testament scholarship, I think, in certain quarters, uh, to continue approaching Axe's historiography uh, as a relatively historical material for us to uh, um, uh, um, dig into. Uh, so given the source criticism and mimetic criticism that you pursue, what remains of you, uh, for you of the portrait of Axe as historically accurate? And is there any method for approaching these questions that you might advise among New Testament scholars who do not specialize in Luke Axe as you do? Yeah, in terms of advice, I would recommend caution. Um, so I don't, I don't think I, I'm, I take a stance in the book on historicity of acts or even like implications of of genre or implications for the genre and subsequently for for historicity. Um, in part because uh, it's not clear to me that there are straightforward implications. Um, and maybe, maybe there are people from certain camps that camps that would would see straightforward implications, and and I would probably agree with with the implications they're thinking of. But uh, right, so so I definitely think of the book of, of, of you know, Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts as fictionalized. Uh, I I don't typically call them fiction because I, I think that's maybe a bit too uh, attention grabby. I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm not opposed to it just because, uh, but so, so when you, when you talk about his, historiography in, in antiquity, uh, it's all fictionalized. Uh, and so even if you say like the, the best genre for the book of access historiography, which is not my opinion, but, but as people I respect take that position, uh, even so you're not getting rid of the possibility of fictionalization. Uh, it's just, 
what it involved in the ancient world. And so, uh, I mean, it, I guess there, there are segments of, of our guild that, that will use the Book of Acts as kind of a historical source book. Maybe especially Pauline scholars would, would try to, to use the Book of Acts as a, as a guidepost. Some, not all. No, no, certainly not all, um, but some. Uh, and that is something that I, more baffles me than anything. Um, but so, so maybe one point I, w- I was wanting to make was, uh, insofar as I, I say that it, it doesn't have a necessary implication for the historicity, is uh, you can have an event that really happened, and it could be, be presented in such a way that it recalls a model of a story where something similar happens. And that doesn't tell you one thing or the other about that story actually happening. It does tell you, it, I think it has strong implications about the the details of, of that story, the presentation of that story, uh, but it doesn't tell you about the, the story itself. So for instance, uh, the the killing of, of John the Baptist in, in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so Dennis MacDonald has argued that that's modeled off of, I think it's the story of uh, Clytemnestra killing Agamemnon, uh, but I could be wrong. I didn't look that up beforehand. Uh the fact that it, it let's say he's correct, uh, you know, whatever he, whatever it is he argues, let's say he's correct. That doesn't mean that John the Baptist was, was not killed by, by a Herodian. Uh, we know that that is true because uh, Josephus talks about it. So there, there's external sources that attest to that event happening, even if not the details. Uh, and so I'm not ready to say that uh, about a lot of things in the book of Acts that uh, there could not be some other external attestation uh, that that tells us that something actually happened. I just think we don't have the, the data. So I think it's, it's much better to focus on uh, what we can say with confidence. And, and that's looking more at the literary meanings, not looking, not trying to peer behind the text at the history of the early church. Uh, I, I guess I'm kind of skeptical about how, how well that could be accomplished, but uh I think much more fruitfully you can look at what the the narrative seems to be trying to accomplish literarily. Sure, and, and, and in some cases imitate, as you have uh, suggested. Um, okay, uh, so uh, you do have an interesting way of bookending your uh, uh, the the meat of your of your uh, revised dissertation. Um, both in the introduction and conclusion, you. Um, uh, 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 just to honor the perspective that you have here and say that I actually agree with the counter-imperial critiques that you put forth. Um, you appeal to sort of American discourse after 9-11, which is something that, uh, uh, making an assumption about your age, we both sort of grew up with around the time of high school. Um, and, and, um, and the way that scripture was used to support imperial violence um, without an acknowledgement that uh, the founder of Christianity himself was an, a victim of imperial violence, as it were. Uh, and I think you want to suggest that maybe there are some double standards that are or blind spots in, um, in our uh, cultural psyche, perhaps, or our cultural religiosity. Can you say more about your investment in this uh, counter-imperial criticism of uh, the New Testament? And uh, is this kind of a pre-existing influence for you? Did, was it born out of your um, uh, um, investiture in, in uh, Luke-Acts? And uh, uh, why does it resonate so much uh, for you that you bookend your monograph here with it? Yeah, uh, I'm afraid there's not a great answer. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so, but, but on the one hand... Uh, 
uh, I will say that uh, I think I was struck as because the, the, the introduction and conclusion you're talking about were not a part of the dissertation. Uh, so that was a part of turning it into a book. Uh, you you were, I think, correct in, in your review where you say it might have made more sense to, in these, these sections, sort of contextualize the book of Acts, Luke and Acts, with other sort of Jewish and Christian writings and their uh, positionality toward the Roman Empire, uh, which I agree. Uh, I think part of the reason that didn't occur to me was because I haven't really seen a lot uh, that, that was comparable that would have been helpful to frame it that way. Uh, but also, I think I was struck by the way in which uh, the aspects of empire, the Roman Empire, that, that I think you can credibly say the Book of Acts disapproves of, uh, economic exploitation and, and extraction and uh, military violence, are also very credibly understood as the American contributions to the attacks on 9-11. Um, so it's not just that. It's not to say that Americans are to blame for 9-11, uh, but maybe it is to say that with a different foreign policy, 9-11 wouldn't have happened. Um, so I was struck by, by, by uh, those, those similarities, and that might have been what, what prompted me to, to think about that. And so, so at the beginning, I do talk about sort of the idea of using the Bible as a resource for thinking about modern events. And so look to you know, Falwell and, and the 700 Club uh, in the wake of 9-11, and then other responses to 9-11. Uh, so what I argue in the conclusion is that uh, there are ways in which the readings of Luke and Acts that I argue for uh, can be credibly used to think about uh, modern situations. So if you want to use the Luke or Acts to argue against, uh, so for instance, um, uh, military violence, it would be credible, more credible if you do so if you by appealing to a passage that, that in its historical context is credibly understood as disapproving of military violence. Um, and so, so in, in some sense, it was just a, a thought experiment uh, for thinking about how to, uh, how you can credibly use the Bible today for thinking about uh, uh, modern events, uh, coinciding with my own sort of development in, in political thinking. Uh, and so I'm sure that was a part of wanting to to think through these things. Excellent, Michael. Well, uh, thank you so much for your time today for this uh, long conversation about uh, your, your book and your other work that you have uh, been doing both before and since. And uh, I'm excited to see what you come up with uh, next. Um, as I say in the review, I think you've broken new ground on Luke Acts, you've gone further than other scholars have before in the source criticism. And um, I'm just curious what you're working on now or where your work is heading next. Yeah. So uh, since finishing the book, I've, I've mostly been focusing on uh, writing a series of articles on uh, different narratives from, from the ancient world, Jewish and Christian, um, and their use of literary models as a way for uh, dealing with different themes and topics and uh, and so, uh, but the, the project I'm working on now, the, the big project when I'm not working on little projects instead, uh, is a, a book where I talk about uh, the topic of Gentile inclusion in the book of Acts. Uh, so it's meant to be, it's meant to complement the studies that look at the explicit things like the, the appeals to scripture in, in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, uh, where there's a, like an explicit reasoning about including non-Jews. 
Um, and so in, in this project, I'm looking at uh, the literary models and the way that the author of Acts can be understood as using re- uh, readers' familiarity with, with uh, popular stories from the Jewish scriptures and classical Greek literature as a way of encouraging them to uh, uh, adhere to the author's position regarding uh, non-Jewish inclusion that, that is permissible under certain circumstances, uh, and also to uh, uh, stigmatize people who disagree with that assessment. Uh, so for instance, uh, since we've talked about uh, the Bacchae, uh, by associating people who oppose the inclusion of non-Jews with Penthus. Uh, and so those who recognize what's going on there uh, presumably would not want to be associated with Penthus. And so that sort of stigma might act as a, a, a part of the persuasion of, of the Book of Acts. Excellent. Well, I look forward to it very much. And uh, it seems like a natural progression from uh, the work that you have uh, done on your uh, dissertation and its revision uh, here in uh, this book. So uh, thank you, Michael Kashanash, for uh, uh, your time today, for your work on uh, Luke X, and for being our guest on the New Books Network. Hey, thank you so much, Rob. Uh, again, Dr. Kashanash's book is Roman Self-Representation and the Lucan Kingdom of God, and it's available now from Lexington Books and Fortress Academic, wherever quality books are sold. I've been Rob Heaton, your host in New Testament and Early Christian Studies for New Books and Biblical Studies, and I'll be with you again on your next download. But in the meantime, never stop questioning. Thank you. Bye-bye.